so it's been uh, interesting navigating the the academy. Um, Hogwarts, right? Is that what you're mm-hmm. That's where Just I go. To be clear, Hogwarts. I study that. Hey, folks, and welcome to Brown and Out. Today we're talking to Brian Gonzalez. What's up, Brian? Hey, Reggie. Hey, indeed. How's it going? It's going pretty well. Um, good afternoon to you. It is so far. Yep. Really? Excited to be here. For sure. Uh, I'm excited Thank to have you. Thank you for having you. me. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, I, I reckon we'll just have a casual convo today. Nothing too deep. I'm not trying oh, to... I don't know about that. I'm not trying to scare a Brian. <laughs> um, Brian. Yes. Because I know that you're itching to tell us. What are some things we should know about you? Some things you should know about me uh, is the, are that I am... From New York. Oh, wait, the, the city of New York? Yeah. Grew oh, shit. Up, uh, just outside of it. And then when I was younger, moved to the city proper and lived there for the last uh, 11 years. And then uh, now I've been in Vermont, living in White River Junction um, for the last year. I don't know how that happened. It went by really fast. But it's been a year. And now here I am. Um, let's see. Other things to know about me are that I am a graduate student. Um, I study cognitive neuroscience at Dartmouth. Um, and have been doing some sort of you know, science research for the last five, six years. Um, and I also think, I guess more in terms of who I am identity wise, um, I, well, I, I guess I start before me, if that makes any sense, you know, (laughs) know, that probably doesn't make sense. What I mean is that the story of Brian began well before Brian. Um, my mother is from a town she was born in one town and then grew up in another called Coyolito in El Salvador and my dad is from a town called Desamparados in Costa Rica and um, they both met here in the US um, I want to say 1980 like somewhere around 1986 um, at least that's, I know more of like my mom's story, I guess. My dad still lives in Costa Rica. Um, but somewhere around 1986, I want to say is when my mom crossed over the border and it was, um, I guess so, so there was like a big civil war in El Salvador. I don't know if you knew, but it was, uh, so it was pretty, I guess it was pretty dangerous. Uh, and so she left, um, on her own, she tells me the story all the time. I love hearing it. Um, but that was so. That was in some point in the eighties. Just kind of like get out of there. Um, and yeah, so they met in in New York and created me. Um, but that's always been like a 
a very defining sort of narrative for me, for sure. Um, I guess another thing to know about me is that I, hmm, how do I say this? It's, I pass. That's an easy, that's an easy way to say it, actually. If I, you know, comb my hair a certain way or dress a certain way, act a certain way, you could squint and not really see much of a difference. But if you squint and look for something else, you'll see that there's something different about me. So that's always been uh, something I've navigated um, sort of in terms of learning what that means uh, or, and how it's sort of shaped me. Um, so I think it's, and it's also, I think it's a, it's a caveat to any of my perspectives that I would share. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of anything else that one should know about me. Pretty gay. Love that. Um, I'm a terrible public speaker. This feels like public speaking a little bit. I know it's just you and I. It's just not natural. Um, yeah. That's some things that people should know about me in terms of a baseline of sort of some of my perspective. I, I um, was not always a scientist, obviously. Started out doing a bunch of different things. Um, I did my undergrad at NYU, um, and I started as a pre-med biochemistry major, and I don't know why I did that. Um, well, I do know why I did that. I was actually explaining this to someone else recently. Um, I, I wanted to get into a school because I was a competitive applicant, not because I was, like, competitive for like one program or something like that. Like I wanted to get, I wanted to like apply to competitive departments. I don't know. It doesn't make sense. Uh, but anyway, I jumped around um, thinking, oh, I want to do this. I want to be a doctor. Uh, no, I want to work in business and boss people around and wear nice Italian suits. And so I like was an economics major for a while. Um, and then you know, after, during college and then and, uh, for a while afterwards, I jumped around different industries too, just working in um, just very different fields just to kind of get a sample of different things because I had no idea what the hell I wanted to do. Um, yeah, yeah. Started out thinking I wanted to do something more creative so I worked for a couple of magazines in New York, and that was fun and cool. And um, But, you know, sounded a lot cooler and funner than the reality was. And also there were, you know, I was drawn to it because I think there's a handful of very, very smart people um, sort of working in... Uh, so I was, I was working in fashion for a while. Um, and I, you know, and there still are a, hand, a good handful of smart people, but there's just for every sort of intelligent artist, there's four other people who are just sort of a little more, you know, vapid. And so it wasn't really for me. Um, 
and then I decided to, you know, leave and I worked for a business consulting firm for a while um, on a software development team. Yeah, ostensibly, you know, like a pretty good gig. It was like this, you know, PwC, it's, yeah, right? And, uh, but that wasn't necessarily what I was into either. So when I got the call um, for a job at NYU um, in research, I took a huge pay cut <laughs> and, um, you know, did something that was more in line with. To be a scientist? Yeah, yeah, to do something that was more in line with um, my interests, so. I mean, before that, I was also doing research on a bunch of different things, social psychology labs. Uh, I worked in a sleep disorder lab, which was rough. Um, More on that later. Yeah, no, it was, it was interesting. Every time I tell someone, oh, yeah, I used to do research on sleep disorders, that's, I get their, their anecdote and their story. I'm like, oh, you know, I think I have something. And um, <laughs> I, I, think, I think I might... Can you diagnose me? Yeah. So uh, then bounced around just um, different labs until I ended up at NYU Langone, which is the medical school there. And they, there I was just doing, I was doing research on PTSD, which was not anything I was interested in before coming in. It was just like I wanted experience in those methods. Um, but I ended up there for a while, um, over three years, four, over, well, actually four years, um, Let's see. And it was amazing. Totally changed my life. I had no, I did not think about um, vets uh, that often. Um, I did like sort of theoretically like, yeah, it's for the troops and, and, you know, like fine. But um, it wasn't until I started to work with them. And then even that took, a, 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 I would say, a year or so before I sort of uh, felt more emotionally invested in that work because um you know it's just scientifically it's a it's a fascinating um like issue or disorder um but our our goal there was kind of like to try to separate um sort of changes in the brain that happen um as a part of some sort of psychological trauma versus you know maybe some sort of difference in your brain because of like literal blunt force trauma from a you know an explosion or what have you and those things are hard to parse out like you know what sort of symptoms or effects are you having because of um physical trauma and what sort of symptoms are you experiencing because of emotional trauma or you know psychological trauma which is interesting um so i worked uh with vets there for a while and that was great um and then i finished up my master's and arrived in White River Junction for my PhD, and here I am. You're working on that now? I am, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, now my research is a little bit different. Um, yeah, it's more of like a computational cognitive neuroscience, sort of the math of the brain, which I know doesn't, uh, doesn't excite too many people, but I find it I'm thrilled. Can you tell us some more about your time at the sleep disorder lab? Mm. <laughs> yeah, that was, it was cool. I mean, I really did not, um, I was not keen on doing that kind of research. It was 100% overnight. Uh, it's, I guess what people call shift work. 
Um, so that means that you would start a shift mm-hmm. at what time? Seven or eight p.m. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you would go to work and not sleep. Nope. But monitor other people's sleep. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Pretty much, kind of like a professional creeper, just watching people sleep. And, Perfect. Yeah. Um, but you know, had them attached to all these wires and just monitoring kind of brain activity and things of that nature. Um, I don't know how people did it, but some people managed to sleep with all that kind of equipment on them. And uh, my job was just to, uh, first off, just creep them, like watch them. There was cameras in there. I could watch them while they slept and also monitor kind of brain activity for different um, uh, sort of things that we were trained to look out for. Um, yeah, it was mostly, you know, your run-of-the-mill apnea. Um, but every once in a while, we'd get some cool parasomnias, people who would eat. Um, I think I remember one person who definitely had an issue, who had like an issue masturbating in his sleep, and we didn't understand that. But The eating, was there just food? There was just food around? People would get up and stuff like that. Obviously, so not in the mini fridge. They would present as, like, I've been getting up and eating, and I don't know, or, like, you know, I wake up with food and stuff like that. People would come in sort of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with an issue that mm-hmm. they had been experiencing, and it was your job to monitor for that? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Hmm. Pretty much. It, was not, it was not not too fancy. Not, not, it not sounds too fancy <laughs> to me. It sounds like there's a whole TV series around that. Like, there should be. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, there could be. Um had one woman who would have these violent seizures in her sleep and like just not even wake up. It was fascinating. Um, the brain, am I right? Yeah. It's a complicated design. I feel like this is um, <clears throat> this is uh, on brand or on theme. What do you feel about ASMR. <laughs> I, it's interesting. Um, so I don't know as far as so. I know that there's this other thing. I'm going to get to ASMR, but there is another thing. You know, people talk about uh, binaural beats. Can um, you elaborate? You know so it's like um, listening to something and. You know, the I think it's better to do with headphones because the um, sort of underlying frequency of one ear and is different from like by the frequency in the other. So there's a differential, say, of like what would be a seven hertz um, frequency between the two ears, and and the idea is that your brain kind of like um, senses that seven hertz or that differential and. Um, you know, like I know one person doing research on how those sorts of, I think he's calling them vibrations, which is not a very scientific term, but um, how they can sort of spread in the brain and, and sort of um, bring all of your neurons to sort of a um, more cohesive firing rate. And so that that could be conducive to maybe sleep or attention or something like that. Um, so with ASMR, I don't think it's the same thing, but there is a, it's obviously auditory, and there are these um, sensations that people have. So 
I don't know. And I, and I understand that it's only certain people who have the like ability to experience the, the tingles, as they say. Is it junk science? Is it fake news? The question is still out there. Who knows? I don't know. The jury's still out. Mm -hmm. The verdict has yet to be determined. Yeah, I mean, and if it if it works for someone, then you can by all means, you know. If it's I, all junk, I will. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Have you tried it? Um. <clears throat> No, I've definitely indulged in some um, YouTube videos featuring ASMR. Um, I don't know that I've tested myself to see how effective. I don't even, I'm not sure what it's supposed to do for me either. So hmm. I first need to figure out the desired result, then do a hypotenuse, and mm -hmm. then... The hypotenuse will get you there. Then reflect further upon my stratagem there's a guy um who's got this channel and he's like he's sort of handsome but his whole channel is like kind of like lulling you to sleep yeah in a very romantic sure way yeah i'm, I'm not gonna lie that. you know it's it's you, so you get something pose, you're getting right? something out of asmr culture i wouldn't say anything physical but some some people do you know so uh, whether it's psychosomatic or not, I don't I have no idea. Psychosomatic or not. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Okay, this might seem like a left turn I'm ready. for some, but it's not for me. Since you voluntarily offered up <laughs> that you yeah. are a, um, you feel like you're a European or white passing person. In society, so I guess my question to you is: Do you feel that that makes you mm, less credible when talking about issues that affect Latinx people? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think a lot of that's going to depend on like the things that you that one is out here saying. I try to choose my words very carefully, and I totally understand that my my narrative and the way that I go about life is going to be completely different from um, you know another a Latino person who you know just looks different or you know um, there's you know Latino people are so heterogeneous there's a lot of variability in us and what we look like mm. and it's really so so you know it's it's interesting because we don't all we're not all going to have the same story so I, I would never um i just have a different perspective and i would only ever speak from from that and that would be one where to uh, another person looking at me, they see something that I that may or may not be as as correct, you know. Um, and I, I mean, I, I learned this kind of as I as I grew up, and it's that like there's a lot of Latinx, uh, Latin American people who have a very um, insecurity is the best word I can think of for it or this sort of like 
yeah, this idea of like how American have I become and like how attached to the culture am I and, and all this kind of th- stuff. And growing up, I thought that was only me. And then I realized that no, actually, it, people of whatever complexion have that a similar insecurity of like, um, like maybe you're like a darker complexion does not make one more Latino. And just like me, uh, like I can speak Spanish, but that doesn't, sometimes I can feel like maybe that's not there. There's no like point system to the culture, you know? And it took me a while to realize that you, there's no, there's no score to be capped to say like, Oh, if you check this box, like, Oh, I speak the language. Oh, I've got the skin. Oh, I've like, I could dance. Oh, I can cook. <laughs> I can do all these you things. You said I could dance. <laughs> yeah. Can you dance? Though? I can definitely dance. I feel like I can check. All, if there were, if there were a scoreboard, you swear you can dance. I get all the points except, uh, except my complexion, which is like, which is okay, and it doesn't matter um, because I know it's it's you know it's going to sound cheesy, but it's more about like you know what's what's inside and, and sort of how you your sort of sensibility about the world, and you get that from a lifetime of, of culture and, and not, um, I don't know, someone else sort of assigning it to you, if that makes sense. But you asked me about credibility and, um, and, and yeah, I think it just depends on kind of the actual words being said or expressed. I, you know, I I would never, um, try to speak to anybody else's perspective of my own and it's and it's different and it's going to be different than a latino person with a darker complexion for sure but it's going to be similar perhaps to somebody with a lighter complexion or um or different um so i think it's it's always been a, a unique kind of place to be um because so when i was uh growing up i guess it's just outside the city, it's around mostly um, white folks, and and it was also I was a teenager, and like so, I would say the most salient thing about me was that that like oh gay thing, and like so thinking about my Latino identity was kind of like didn't I didn't because that was that was home anyway. Um, so being gay was more salient to me. And then growing up, I, you know, began to meet more people of color that weren't sort of related to me or in church or something. And uh, then I realized that, like, you know, there's other people who have the same sort of insecurity of, like, not feeling enough of whatever and that it wasn't just me. So that was good. But... um is it well? I guess what makes the perspective kind of unique is that there's a certain like, like white people will kind of just like let their guard down a little and they forget around me sometimes, and so they're a little looser with their tongues, you know, um, say things that they probably wouldn't say around somebody who looked darker or you know, and that has been interesting too because it's sort of like. I, I, it's almost like I get a, I get to see kind of sometimes I guess what someone wouldn't say around a person of physical color, you know. Um, but you know, as far as 
my upbringing and sensibilities and culture and values. You know, they're totally, you know, Central American home, you know, that I had. And uh, I don't know, I'm just really proud of that. Yeah sort of answer your question <laughs> yes yeah um of course it's the question's not unanswered it's your answer um but we all have to be careful with you know kind of the things that we say and i i think i know that uh we have to be aware of like the whatever privileges we're walking around with, with and um you know, just the same way that I can sort of not complain, but, you know, talk about that sort of unfiltered uh, speech that I might have been around um, when I was younger around, like, white people who would, you know, just say wild shit. Um, at the same time, you know, that same comfort, I guess, definitely that, that, that people had around me might have afforded me some, some privileges for sure. So I think that we're in agreement. I think I would say that the problem or the most problematic point when when people of lighter complexions who identify with a group, if if you are Latinx but you know that you like pass as white, or if you are black and you know that you pass as Middle Eastern or Latinx for example, I think we both agree that the point is to acknowledge that and not forget that, you know, while you hold the same identity, while you self-identify um, as you do, you are granted certain privileges in a white supremacist society, right? Sure. It's something I've been thinking about a lot. I'm almost annoying about it. Uh, like, I've been thinking about the differences between diversity and inclusion. Mm. And I was listening to something somewhere. And they said that, you know, like, white people can promote diversity, i.e., let's get more black and brown people in the room. But only, like, I shouldn't say only, but, like, it's better for black and brown people to be the ones sort of promoting inclusion, um, and the difference between the two are like, let's get black and brown people in the room is diversity, whereas inclusion feels something more like, let's make this space less white. And I think that like institutions in their, with their programs and stuff are great with diversity. Um, but on the inclusion side, it really sh should be informed by a perspective from a person of color uh, um, or, you know, from an underrepresented perspective really is going to, is going to know how to really address inclusion um, more than I think um, a white person. Um, so, so I think what you're doing is great. <laughs> and I don't think, um, thank you, Brian. You should uh, doubt it. Um, you mentioned being competitive or having a competitive edge. You did. Okay. I don't know if you forgot that. Okay. 
And I was just curious as to what your star sign was. I don't know what a star sign is. Literally, when is your birthday? It's in June, June 5th. You're a Gemini. Oh, astrological sign. Yes. Okay, yes. I don't know what that means or what it says about me, but yep. Um, we'll figure it out. This, like, this honestly, this doesn't have to be like super astro episode we've like (laughs) we've done those before like we you grew up in and around new york city Mm -hmm. how would you say that shaped you (laughs) um definitely for the better i was able to entertain a bunch of whims you know, things that I thought I might be interested in. I was able to just try it out. Um, and I really had the sort of Goldilocks method of, of figuring out a career path of just trying a bunch of stuff. And uh, New York let me do that actually at a really sort of high level. Um, if I was interested in um, any particular field, I could do it sort of at like, you know, a company or, or place that is at the highest, you know, level of doing something. Um, so that made me feel like I, I really got a taste for something when I tried it. And also just the amazing people um, that I was able to meet and come across. Um, I don't know. I often think about, so I often think about college and the person I would have been I mean, I would definitely be gay no matter where I went to school or lived. And I think about when I came out, which was relatively late, and if that would have been different had I been somewhere else, and I'm sure it would have. Um, So I think, you know, New York was great, even if all it did was... um, open the door of the closet for me to walk out of. Um, even if that's all I did for me, it was great. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I think had I been anywhere else, I'd be a totally different person. Um, so I don't know who, but it would have been wasted time um, in, in the sense that, uh I don't know. I'm just already pretty cool and feel like the best, <laughs> the best version of myself. And New York gave you that. It helps. You're you're in a New York state of mind. It helped. Um, you're in Mason, uh, Martin Margellas. <laughs> yes. Um, cut to cognitive neuroscience. Cognitive neuroscience. Just Amazing. can you just offer a word? on what it is to be involved in that field. It's um so the cognitive would be the more psychological side of things and obviously neuroscience is neuroscience so it's sort of the the I would say the interface between um the mind and the brain. Does that make sense? Sure. Um when I was studying PTSD the sort of model for it is this thing called fear conditioning. Um, which is where you um, repeatedly pair a neutral stimulus with an aversive one. Um, So much so that eventually the neutral stimulus on its own becomes 
aversive and something to be feared. And so for these veterans, you might imagine that that's something like, you know, a car alarm or, or a loud bang of a trash can or something that's like now associated with something really aversive. And um, there are sort of formal models of fear conditioning. By that, I just mean pretty much math formulas um, that sort of explain um, what's going on um, cognitively to associate maybe two stimuli together. Um, and they're very simple and elegant. I just thought that was fascinating that you can like a simple like math um, formula could capture something that, um, again, like more on the human side of it, I saw to be so profound and like affect these people's lives in such uh, enormous ways. And so capturing that in a logic, capturing that in, in math, I thought was, was really beautiful. Um, so I lean more towards sort of computational methods in neuroscience. Um, yeah, I'm not a, it's, a. No, it sounds like you're sort of like reading or interpreting emotions from the math. Sure, it's yeah, it's it's like a a logic. I'm, I'm mm. not a, I'm not a math minded person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm like no, you're a Gemini. I yes, I guess. So I've, I've I'm drawn to you know. There's some some romance in neuroscience that I really um, get excited about, but you have to, to work for it. And then once you find it, it's pretty, um, it's pretty beautiful. This, um, it raises something for me and I want to ask you about how you feel about, um, the role racism can play in PTSD yeah. So mm, okay. do you, it sounds like you've been involved in many trials, scientific trials. Um, and I don't know if this is like ever a formal study you've come across or not, mm -hmm. but can you take a second and imagine with me the effects that racism has on the brain as far as PTSD goes mm -hmm. and how it relates to some of the work you've done yeah i mean there's reggie that's not gonna there's no surprise here <laughs> I it's, don't, uh, it's exactly I, my breaking new ground it's exactly <laughs> what uh we all already know which is mm -hmm. um that black and brown folks are definitely going to be disproportionately affected and um you know i think one thing that everybody in that field um agrees on is that is is the effect of childhood trauma mm. on um you know it whether or not you experience ptsd later on in life mm -hmm. and it's you know it's not i'm not an expert on childhood trauma but um we just know that the resources for especially for treatment are not there and the vas are terrible um except maybe not here i i've heard that you know, we have in White River that they have like the big PTSD place, so that's exciting. Um, but I know in, in New York that the VA was not uh, um, not the most efficient. Um, and you know that being in the Bronx and where 
you know, the only resource for, for, for these guys, uh, and, and women there, you know? And so, you know, the help just isn't there. So it's, it's not super surprising. Um, yeah. And it's a, it's a shame. Um, for sure. It's not my research anymore. I mean, I think that whole mm-hmm. thing, um, that fear conditioning model of learning to um, fear something that is not itself fearful got me really excited about learning in general. Um, so if somebody were to ask me what my research is about now, broadly, it's it's sort of uh, learning and sort of the math of the brain while you, we learn and, and come to associate different things together and, and um, build out these abstractions of things from that um so yeah if somebody what i study is learning um yeah but it's, it's been interesting i feel like there's a lot of um good nonfiction books like popular nonfiction books around that subject lately any you've read that are particularly mm. of interest that you could recommend maybe um Related to, like the science of learning. Oh gosh, no. So, <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a, of, like, well, no, there's... pop psychology stuff out there. That yeah, but it doesn't mean it's bad because it's popular. The art of thinking, I think, is maybe one or, mm-hmm. or the art of slow thinking. Thinking fast and slow. Thinking fast and hey, Danny shout Kahneman. out. Danny Kahneman. Shout out to Nobel laureate Danny Kahneman, who's definitely listening to this. Uh, yeah, that's actually one of, that one stands out for sure. Um, and it's just about, you know, this, these two systems of, of, you know, just like it says, thinking fast and slow. One more deliberative um, and Another more, I guess, content. Uh, yeah, so one, the more deliberative sort of processing would just be our everyday conscious decision making, and the other being more, um, more uh, automatic, unconscious things. Um, yeah, I would say that book is that book holds out for sure. It's not, uh, yeah, it's cool. I mean, it it's not the most. Um, I think it's. Can be drier if people don't, you know, aren't into that sort of thing. But I mean, I liked it. I liked it a lot for sure. Um, and Danny Kahneman is a, he's legendary. Yeah. So the goat. Good get. I'm I'm impressed you knew that. That's a... Um. <laughs> so you mentioned I couldn't help but notice you saying that both of your folks were born. In Central America, yeah. Outside of this country, mm-hmm, for mm-hmm, sure. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk for a moment about birthright citizenship? Oh, God. <laughs> or is that... Let's do it. Is that off the, is that no, off the that's table? That's fine. You know, I understand that it's, it's in the news right now as something. Um, and I've really had to calibrate my, my news intake from any source. Um, I do that on purpose. Um, but that story is so it's my whole life is that story of of um people you know leaving their homes and risking their lives um and it's very 
I don't know. It's 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 so interesting, and, and it's when you put it, you have to put it in this context too of of politics and politics over decades, and you know the way the U.S. has intervened in, in Latin America, um, and what sort of what sort of um, dynamics have led to this sort of volatility in, in Latin America and Central America. Um, these are just people, uh, you know, who who want um, better, like anyone else. Um, I can't imagine, I, or, or I, I try, but I can't imagine often how, you know, what my life would be, you know, had I grown up in Central America, um, the way that, you know, I was supposed to, the way that it was, you know, laid out. Your mother was fleeing from something, wasn't she? Yeah, there was a, a pretty bad civil war in El Salvador in the 80s. Um, so the situation isn't dissimilar. People right now generally, and have been for years, they, uh, I mean, not all, but a majority of folks coming in from the southern border are fleeing narco-terrorism to me. Like, I'm not trying to, you know, uh, oversimplify anything, but it seems like at a certain point, your parents or your mom at least was trying to leave the same situation that's just like replicated itself again today. Like, I feel like late 80s, it was, you know, I don't know that it was drug gangs and stuff, but there was governmental turmoil that probably like the U.S. government slash people had a lot to do with that was fucking things up socially and politically where your mother was from that made the situation, you know, desirable to come here. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not easy. I don't, you have to be leaving something dire to be, you know, to risk your life, uh, crossing, um, you know, and people leave their kids or people send their kids. And I think the conversation in the States has been really sort of like they're coming here to take and they're taking and it's people are not thinking about what, what they're fleeing, like what we're getting away from. And it's not so, and so addressing an immigration problem is a, is like a bandaid and it's, 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 it's much bigger than that. Um, it's not, it's immigration. It's not the problem to be addressed. It's like how we are working with these governments and we're not working with these governments. Um, but it seems that, you know, it's just not something people feel willing to do, unfortunately. Have that conversation. Yeah. Um, because all, the only things that we can see are like, you know, what's going on in our neighborhoods and, and not necessarily the bigger picture. Um, but it's, it's a shame because, you know, it, um, you know, these, like, we're breeding wonderful people, we're breeding lawyers and doctors and cognitive neuroscientists who, you know, um, are going to change things. I, I, I don't know. I have this conversation with some, a sister of mine, um, shout out to Kat, um, about, 
sort of what is the more effective way to, um, I guess, resist, you know, are, are we better served with our heads down working and becoming, you know, integral parts of society that you can't be racist if the lawyer getting you out is black or, or Latino, or, um, you can't be racist if the doctor treating your cancer is a Latina, you know? Is that more effective or than, you know, marching in the streets? And I, I mean, the answer is obviously is both, you know, that, that both of those things are absolutely necessary. Um, and, I, and I just think first generation, second generation, children of immigrants, like, really have a different, uh, a different motivation uh, and to, you know, do something with their lives because it's not just it's not just for them it's a different motivation than who um than sort of uh white people because it's it's i don't know you grow up with it's always like you know si fuera mi país if this was my country like things you would not be in school at all like why are you complaining about getting up early or something like that you know it's it's your, at least I was constantly reminded of what the alternative could have been for me. And that was, um, that was really, I guess, motivating because it was just like, yeah, actually, I don't actually have problems here as much as I like to think I, I do. Um, so I think it's a, it's a awesome, beautiful thing. And, um, yeah, we, we, we start out sort of at the bottom, but, um, there's, I think that we're making a lot of ground in terms of this, like where we are a generation later and stuff like that. Um, yeah. That's quite optimistic of you. <laughs> yeah. I try to be. I try to be. Um, I used to feel like, um, pissed. Actually, I mean, I can, I'm still pissed all the time. Um, but I used to sort of think of like that starting point and how in those differences, the starting point between me and like my white counterparts and, um, I would be pissed about it. And, um, you know, place blame where it didn't belong. Um, and I don't know, I think since growing up it's just it's totally different i have just so much respect for anybody who can you know they're heroes anybody who can um do that like take that journey and and it's uh, it's just amazing to me and that's so it's yeah i don't know it's it's a lot it's profound it's it's scary i'm sure um i think that one day i want to do it myself just to see like start in El Salvador and just do it and see if I could. I don't know that I could. It's much that distance, you know, from Central America to to New York where I am now is a much much bigger distance than you know me and my little PhD. Like that's mm, mm. like that's cute, <laughs> but I'm not. I never. I'm not risking my life. I'm risking my credit, but. 
on my life. So um, there's so much value in that, I think. What does black and brown queer culture in Vermont look like to you? Uh, pretty much just this sitting here. Um, I don't think I'm the first person to say that. Uh, it's, there's a, I won't say desperation, but there's something about meeting a person of color or another, um, person from the LGBTQI community that it's a, it's a, I've seen like a desperate, like I've been someone who has just been waiting and I've been this person, someone who's just been waiting for another person to talk to who gets it and who can relate about certain things. So, um, I would say that that is kind of what it looks like. It looks like we're here and there's, um, we're few and far between, but when we find each other, it's like, Oh, I found one. Like I'm going to hold on because there, there's so few of us. Does that make sense? That would be, that would be what I think it is so far, <laughs> which has been interesting. It's not, um, of course I've, I've always thought about my identity and such. Um, but I have never felt more Latino or more gay since moving here. And it's because of like being dumped into this bowl of milk, you know, it's like even a, a visual perceptual thing. It's like this, when everything looks the same, it's like, you know, these smaller differences, um, stand out a lot more. It's a, it's, it's interesting, but I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. We, um, I think that people are at least theoretically, you know, at school talk a big game about wanting things to change and wanting to, um, you know, be more proactive. Um, and I'm hopeful, I'm cautious, um, because, you know, virtue signaling is a thing. And, um, so I don't, um, I, I worry about getting my hopes up a little too much. Um, but I'm optimistic, I guess, just cautious. You say virtue signaling? Yeah. What is that? It's just, just, you know, this idea of like wanting people to know what your virtues are, know that you believe that, um, you know, a diverse classroom is a better learning environment or know that you believe that black lives matter, um, without actually having to do anything, uh, and, and rather just letting people know that these are your beliefs, but not anything that you intend on acting on. Um, so, I mean, I definitely struggled um, coming to Dartmouth uh, more than I thought I would, because, like I said, it's like I, I do pass, and I thought this is going to be a piece of cake. I, I'll blend right in, but those small differences, like I said, do um, are are magnified, and um, I don't I don't blend right in as much as I thought I would, um, just because of a, a lifetime of you know eating different food and listening to different music and, and speaking a different language. And so I think that, where's I going with this? Basically there's a lot, there can be a lot of virtue signaling because I've struggled, uh, in terms of a culture shock here. It's, it's, 
it's uh, a bit precarious, my, it, emotionally precarious for me to get excited about the potential of people in power telling me that they believe um, in promoting diversity and, and um, saying those things to me can get me sort of excited. But then seeing the opposite is almost reinforcing and it's not, um, it's not productive and it's, um, it seems to do more harm than good because... Um, like I could just keep my head down if I don't have to talk about how uncomfortably white this place is. I could just keep my head down, do my research, and get out. Um, but if I'm told we support you, Brian, like let's let's try to make this space less white, male, cis, hetero, whatever. Let's try to do that. Then I'm going to get my hopes up and feel like. Um, that we could do it. We can, we can do something good here. Um, but if it's all signaling, like I said, uh, then it's just reinfer- reaffirms what I already was kind of thinking, which was that this place isn't for- built for me. And, and um, you know, I am just a diversity student and not necessarily a part of this like inclusion effort. It's like, so, and, I mean, then that can be, you know, painful. So I'm cautious, but I'm, but I'm optimistic. And, uh, I think there's enough, there's enough sort of white guilt around here to make some things happen. When do you feel most browning out? Mm. I would say in private spaces, my apartment in the mornings, you know, cooking breakfast, making my tortillas, my, my eggs, my frijoles and everything, listening to Juan Gabriel, Selena, you know, just being my gay self. Um, I definitely. could fall it's like the, in the American, yeah. I am song. so sorry that that's the only Selena song I know. Drag oh. me. Drag me. Oh, you're missing out. You're missing out. She's, oh. But she's uh, she's also becoming a bit of a trope these days, um, which is sad. If I find out one girl is dressed as her for Halloween, <laughs> I'm just kidding. She's like the new Frida Kahlo. White girl. Also, <laughs> I meant to say. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, that would be the answer. We went, we went way left. When you're listening to Selena at home, when you're cooking. Yeah. There's a... So, I was also reading something about, you know, and we all think about culture being tied to food a lot of the time. And uh, for me, it's very much tied to music and like the music my mom and parents used to play growing up. And that's, that's what's home to me. Sure. Food is home for sure. Um, But for me listening to, you know, a nice, like uh, the rancheras that I used to hate growing up, like that's home now for me. Um, and it's when I feel the most browning out. <laughs> thank you so much for speaking with us today, Brian. Yeah, thank you. I hope uh, I hope that was interesting enough. <laughs> <laughs> it was literally fascinating. Good, good. I'm, I'm glad. It's been fun.